Hey there, Womanica listeners. Today we're bringing you the story of a woman who defied the odds. In the 1940s, a time when most African-American women cooks worked behind swinging kitchen doors, Lena Richard claimed her place as a culinary authority, broadcasting into the living rooms of New Orleans' elite white families. She preceded Julia Child's televised fame by over a decade. Yet today, no footage remains of her show, and few people know her name. This story comes to us from our friends at Side Door, the Smithsonian Institute's podcast. More than 154 million treasures fill the Smithsonian's vaults, and each one of them hides a story. We love how Side Door sneaks you behind the scenes at the Smithsonian to discover stories that can't be found anywhere else, including this one. Here's host Lizzie Peabody with the story of Lena Richard, America's unknown celebrity chef. Door, a podcast from the Smithsonian with support from PRX. I'm Lizzie Peabody. Okay. Well, I'm grabbing the cookbook now as we speak because I'm long overdue in making my gumbo. Paula Rhodes is a lawyer, professor, and human rights advocate. She's also a really good cook. Okay. On page 135 of her cookbook, there is a brief description of making of the roux, since that's a base for a lot of the recipes, not just the gumbo. Paula lives in Denver now, but she grew up in New Orleans. And when I called her up, she was patient enough to walk me through a New Orleans classic, her grandmother's gumbo recipe, starting with the roux. Okay. You heat fat. All right, high heat. Then you add flour. Flour's going in. You stir until light brown. Uh, If you overcook it, then when you add liquids and stuff, it's not going to come out the right consistency. (laughs) How do I know when it's ready? (laughs) Add onions. Okay, here we go. And continue to stir until onions and flour are a golden brown. So that's her basic recipe for a roux. Paula learned to cook from her mother, who in turn learned from Paula's grandmother, Lena Richard. Lena Richard died when Paula was just a baby, but Paula's heard lots of stories about her grandmother, from her family, but also from relative strangers. Because when Lena Richard was alive, just about everyone in New Orleans knew her cooking. She called herself a cateress, but... She was so many things that it's hard to um, really determine what to call her. This is culinary historian Jessica B. Harris. I mean, she was such a trailblazer, but an unknown trailblazer. A woman of color in the Jim Crow South, Lena Richard defied the place assigned to her based on her race and gender to become a celebrity chef. She had her own televised cooking show more than a decade before Julia Child. She faced down barriers we still grapple with as a nation today to claim her place as a culinary icon. This time on Side Door, Lena Richards' extraordinary story and my 
very ordinary attempt at her famous gumbo. After the break. Lena Richard was only 14 years old when she started working, which seems awfully young. But this was the early 1900s, and for an African-American girl in New Orleans, going to work for a wealthy white family would have been pretty normal. Her mother was the maid for a prominent New Orleans family, the Varon family. And when Lena wasn't in school, she went along to help. She started off, you know, preparing lunches for the children uh, and just some household tasks here and there. This is Ashley Rose Young, historian of the American Food History Project at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. And she has spent a decade retracing Lena Richards' life through oral histories and archival research. And Ashley says Lena Richard might easily have grown up to follow in her mother's footsteps. But around 19 years of age, an opportunity arose that really changed Richard's life. And that was the fact that the Varen's cook left the household. And Mrs. Varen actually asked Richard if she could prepare dinner one night. Lena Richard wrote about that night in a short autobiographical essay. She told me I could buy just what I wanted to. I got a chicken, made stew, and had fruit for dessert. From this time on, it seemed that no other cook could please her. We asked New Orleans chef Dee Levine to read Richard's words for us for this episode. I was getting $10 a month and was raised to $15. She then told me that I could go to the store and pick out any kind of cooking utensils that I wanted and that she was going to give me cooking lessons and send me to cooking schools in every demonstration. If no other colored women could get places, I certainly could. Lena Richard had a very close relationship with Mrs. Varen. And once she saw this talent that Richard had cultivated at such a young age, she encouraged Richard to experiment in the home. And eventually, she sent her to cooking school in Boston, a renowned cooking school for women at the time. Crystal Moten is a curator of African-American history and the Division of Work and Industry at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. And so what the support does is it allows her access to um, educational opportunity that was not open to her, that would have excluded her um, based on her race and her gender. So in 1918, Lena Richard, aged 20 or so, heads north to Mrs. Farmer's cooking school. Okay, so do we have any idea what that might have been like for her? Women of color had to acquire the permission of every white woman in the class so as to attend the class with them. Wait a minute. Every white woman in the class had to give written consent that they were okay with being in class with a black woman? Yes. You know, there's the stereotype that racial segregation was something of the American South, but racial segregation permeated every aspect of the United States. It was not the Jim Crow South. It was the Jim Crow nation, Mm. right? And separate but equal um, forms the basis of a Jim Crow segregated society. Blacks and whites... Um, cannot sit together. Richard ate her meals in a separate dining room from her white classmates. But the classes themselves were kind of a confidence boost. I found out in a hurry. They can't teach me much more than I know. I learned things about new desserts and salads. But when it comes to cooking meats, stews, soups, sauces, and such dishes, we Southern cooks have Northern cooks beat by a mile. That's not big talk. That's the honest truth. 
The eight-week course gave Lena something more valuable than cooking instruction. It gave her credibility as a trained professional, a rare thing for a woman of color at that time. And it gave her an idea. I cooked a couple of my dishes like Creole gumbo and my chicken voulevent, and they go crazy almost, trying to copy down what I say. I think maybe I'm pretty good, so someday I'd write it down myself. There's the seed of an idea that maybe one day she should actually write a cookbook, and as we will see down the road, that's exactly what happened. But hold on, we're not there yet. First, Lena returns to New Orleans, gets married, and with the help of the Varon family connections and her new cred as a cooking school graduate, she starts her own catering business around 1928. This is culinary historian Jessica B. Harris again. Catering was a traditional path for African-American women in food, from street vending to catering, because setting up a restaurant was costly and everyone couldn't. But Lena Richards' catering stood apart from all the rest. So she was perhaps best known for this dessert that she called Dream Melon. And she called it Dream Melon because she came up with the idea in her sleep. And it's it's, it's basically uh, an edible watermelon made completely out of ice cream and sherbet. And she would use little raisins as the seeds. So once you take it out of the mold, you would have this perfect, dainty little ice cream melon slice that you could eat through the rind. And people just loved it. They went wild for this dream melon. The local paper wrote that Lena Richards' watermelon ice cream, quote, has delighted many a New Orleans socialite and usually rings gasps of admiration at such places as the New Orleans Club. Lena Richards' edible artistry made her a star among the white New Orleans elite. She could make anything, from sculptural showstoppers to jambalaya and red beans and rice to dainty tea sandwiches. She had the range and reputation to build her business throughout the Depression years. And in 1937, she opened her own cooking school. There was very much a a racial component, if you will, to her desire to open that cooking school and to specifically open it for African-Americans so that they could get better employment. So she really had an eye to elevating the community as a whole and, and making a path for other young professionals. Yeah, back there there was a term. I don't know if it was in use in New Orleans, but it was certainly in use in the North of being a race man or a race woman. She was certainly that. She was out for the race. My purpose in opening a cooking school was to teach men and women the art of food preparation and serving in order that they would become capable of preparing and serving food for any occasion, and also that they might be in a position to demand higher wages. The cooking school is one of the most important aspects of her career to me. Because it really shows how Richard was so invested in her community. And while she was teaching cooking classes, she was also teaching herself how to break down recipes into precise measurements and simple, replicable steps. So the cooking school actually ended up being a laboratory of sorts for her to start working on that cookbook she first had an idea for back at the Fanny Farmer School in 1918. 20 years after the idea began percolating, 
Lena Richard self-published her cookbook in 1939. The title, Lena Richard's Cookbook. So tell me about the cookbook. It is described by, by some as the best Creole cookbook ever written. Really? Yes, yes. I mean, this is an important work because this is the first African-American authored Creole cookbook. And that's huge. Now, I want to bring up here an important kind of definition of Creole cooking. And when I say Creole cooking, I mean cooking of the city of New Orleans. And as a port city, New Orleans had a very diverse population. And so it was many communities coming together in tension and in in communion to create this cuisine that's very distinct to the city itself. And Ashley says what's important for us to understand is how historically the cuisine of this diverse city was represented by only one group of people. The first Creole cookbooks that were published were published by white authors, and that started a tradition that privileged whites' voices in defining Creole cuisine. In fact, the first cookbook in 1885, La Cuisine Creole, was authored by someone who wasn't even a chef. His name was Lafcadio Hearn, and he wasn't even from New Orleans. In fact, he just compiled these recipes from New Orleanians and placed them in this work to be sold. And so it's not until almost 55 years later when Richard publishes this self-titled cookbook that we have an African-American author defining Creole cuisine on her own terms and for her community. And that is so important. In that first cookbook from 1885, the one by Lafcario Hearn, there's a picture on the cover of a smiling African-American woman in a headscarf and a checkered dress holding a pot. The image of the stereotypical, quote, black mammy. So this is a figure of a woman of color, smiling, jovial, kind, uh, willing to, quote-unquote, serve other people. And baked into this image are many stereotypes. One of them, that the skills it took to run the house and cook the meals were not learned, but somehow inherent. That African Americans were innately good cooks. There are quotes that, to paraphrase, pretty much say, you know, if the big house cook is ill, just go down to the quarters and pretty much ask anybody and they can come up and fill in. This is a very harmful stereotype, as many scholars have pointed out, including Tony Tipton Martin, who wrote this incredible book called The Jemima Code, where she really homes in on this idea of how destructive an Aunt Jemima stereotype can be. Destructive in in what sense? It places women of color who work in food industries in a subservient role. It makes them palatable and acceptable for white audiences. And that is racism at its core. And then you have a woman like Lena Richard, who has a self-titled cookbook, who comes in and says, I own these recipes. And I used hard work, culinary classes, technology to to build these recipes in an accessible, scientifically informed manner. She's not just doing this because it's intuition, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. She's a trained individual. In the preface of her cookbook, Lena Richard wrote, The secrets of Creole cooking, which have been kept for years by the old French chef, 
are herein revealed. There is no need to experiment, for I have done the experimenting in my own laboratory kitchen, as well as in my cooking school. In the front of Lena Richards' cookbook, there's no anonymous woman in a checkered dress. There's a portrait of Lena, wearing pearls, hair coiffed in a 1930s wave, smiling slightly. It's a professional headshot. And that just reverses the stereotype of the Jemima code. It puts it on its head. And it presents an entirely new image of what an African-American cook is. After the break, Lena takes her new book on the road north to show those Yankees how gumbo is made. Meanwhile, I'll be checking on my gumbo because I think it's time to add the shrimp. Uh, and she says add that in the stock, too, all at the same time. Okay, I'm going to add the stock. We're back, and here's where we are. Holy Oh no, now there's chicken stock all over my I just kitchen. spilled chicken stock all over my kitchen floor. <laughs> in an attempt to make gumbo, one of the 333 recipes in Lena Richards' 1939 cookbook. The first Creole cookbook published by an African-American author. And unlike so many self-published books, this one did not languish on bookstore shelves. Within a week of the book's publication, 200 people sent letters from Philly, New York, and Boston trying to order it. In an era before Amazon, that's pretty remarkable. Historian Ashley Rose Young put it this way. Her book was blowing up. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was all the rage. So what does she do next? Goes on book tour, of course. Lena and her assistant, her daughter Marie, head north. Suitcases bulging with 10 pounds of cane syrup, Louisiana shelled pecans, old-fashioned brown sugar, and shrimp. Wait, did she really pack shrimp? Yes, dried shrimp. Yeah. <laughs> she wanted to be sure she had everything she needed to give proper cooking demonstrations while promoting her book. But to travel all the way from New Orleans to New York, for Lena, was a risk. And a warning for our listeners, this next section describes racial violence. How dangerous would it have been to travel as a black woman during that time? It could have been very dangerous, and uh, dangerous in the sense that black women uh, faced the very real threat of sexual violence and sexual harassment. Um, because accommodations were segregated, they couldn't go to perhaps mainstream hotels and restaurants. That puts women in a precarious situation. Smithsonian curator Crystal Moten says, it's important to remember that in this period following the Great Depression and World War I, leading into World War II, lynchings were happening. The images of lynching were circulating around the country, right? Lynching postcards traveled through the postal service. And so it was in the public consciousness, in African-Americans' consciousness. Did you say lynching postcards? Definitely, yeah. That speaks to when you ask about the danger, right? Lynching postcards depicted murders and were sent openly through the U.S. mail until 1908, when they were outlawed. But people still sent them, just in envelopes. That's the environment that Lena Richard and Marie were traveling in, mm. right? That's the environment. That's the environment. 
Many times lynching occurred not because of, you know, a suspected sexual violence against white women, but because African-American folks were becoming economically successful and they were becoming threats to a social, economic and political order that threatened white supremacy. And so for Lena Richard to say, I am going to step out of the societal structure that would have me be a so-called menial servant is saying no to a culture where severe, violent reprisals could happen as a result. So it was pretty courageous that she made this trip to New York, but also that she was daring to place herself in that role of authority. That's right. But during this book tour, something amazing happens. A major publisher, Houghton Mifflin, decides to republish Richard's cookbook for national distribution. For uh, Lena Richard to be picked up by this huge mainstream press is just, you know, it's astonishing, really. Backed by Houghton Mifflin, Lena Richard's name starts circulating the country. And this is where she goes from local to national celebrity. I think it's fair to say when a family like the Rockefellers calls you and recruits you to be the head chef of one of their uh, new restaurants, I think that's how we might define celebrity, right? When the Rockefellers call you up. (laughs) The Rockefellers, the 1%, the oil tycoons. At the Rockefellers restaurant, the Travis House, Lena Richard cooked for high-ranking British military officials and even Winston Churchill's family. She wrote, Mrs. Churchill and her daughter Mary came back to see me and shook my hand. I've got Mrs. Churchill's autograph in one of my books, and she's got mine. People came from California, New Mexico, and Indiana to taste her dishes. I mean, people came to the Travis House because they knew Richard was the head chef, and they loved the particular dishes she made there. I mean, you can see that in the guest book reviews that people left, the comments, oh my gosh. My dear Lena, seldom have I enjoyed a meal as much as I have in dining here. And I have dined with royalty. Oh, I am Lena, oysters what oysters? Lena, if your oysters actually have character. Pearl, Lena Richard, we think your oysters are superb. The oysters are The superb. best we've mm. ever eaten. My compliments. Your gifted fingers have given the oysters a soul. What oysters? And they aren't oysters, but perfection. I mean, those oysters, if I could go back in time and have any dish, it would be Lena Richards' scalloped oysters. (laughs) So you see the Travis House really just building up and adding to a national reputation. By the late 1940s, the now nationally known Lena Richard was back in New Orleans. There, she started an international frozen food business, opened her own fine dining restaurant, and nearly 15 years before Julia Child appeared on TV in The French Chef... Lena Richard starred in her own cooking show. When her program aired in 1949 on WDSU-TV, the local channel in New Orleans, this was a big deal. I mean, it was the first culinary program on WDSU-TV, and it was likely the first program in the country that starred an African-American chef. The show was called Lena Richard's New Orleans Cookbook. In each 30-minute episode, she guided viewers through one of her recipes. It aired twice a week, alongside shows like Howdy Doody, Broadway Review, 
and how to improve golf. I'm sorry. That sounds like the most boring show in the universe. Well, it also kind of indicates who were the uh, TV viewers at the time. Remember what a nascent medium TV was back then. TV was only owned by the elite in the late 40s. We're not even talking about the degree of popularity that TV had in the days of Julia Child, and this predates Julia Child by decades. But unlike Julia Child's show, we won't ever know what Lena Richards sounded like, because no record of the show exists. So this is one of the heartbreaking things about studying Richards' story, which is that we don't have any recordings of her television program. We don't even have scripts. And believe me, I have looked at every archive imaginable and and I just can't find this evidence. All we have to go by are the memories of New Orleanians who watched her show, like Ruth Zatteran, whom Ashley spoke with back in 2011. She remembered the kinds of meals Lena Richard prepared on the show. She cooked the kind of food that we were used to, New Orleanians were used to eating. And when you watched, did you just watch the show or did you take notes if she said oh, something? Oh, you always took up a finger and pencil. Because you might pick up something new. Decades after leaving the Varon family home, at the height of her career, Lena Richard was back in the homes of white families, but in a completely new way. Black women were usually hidden away in the kitchen. Black women were supposed to be seen and not heard, right? Um, but that, that is not what mm. is happening in this cooking show. So here she is. She's seen and she's heard. Right. And she's not behind the kitchen doors. She's in the living room. That's right. That's right. Right. And she's in the living room, perhaps reaching uh, more people than she could have imagined. It is absolutely unfathomable. This is a Black woman on TV as an authority. Name five in 2020. They don't exist. By 1950, Lena Richard had built a culinary empire. Her book had sold so well, Houghton Mifflin was working on a second expanded edition. Her restaurant, frozen food business, and school were thriving. She'd hobnobbed with the Churchills and the Rockefellers. She was a New Orleans TV star. She was really just kind of starting out on this truly nationally known stardom. And so what happened? After a year and some change after her TV program premiered, she went home um, not feeling well. And in November of 1950, she passed away of a heart attack. And her story abruptly ends. Lena Richard was about 50 years old. Do you ever wonder what might have happened if she hadn't died so young and so suddenly? I think about it a lot, actually. You know, she is a role model of mine, and I think a role model for many people who know her story. And I can't help but think about 
what else she could have done had she been able to stay on TV at a time where those local programs started broadcasting nationally. I think she would be a household name. In the short time that she had, she did a hell of a lot. God bless her, she kicked some doors in that we're still trying to keep open. the last step, the season with salt and pepper, and just before serving, stir in feeling. All right, moment of truth. Lena Richards gumbo. Mm. That's really good. <laughs> it's really good. I think we call that a success. Lena Richard was born into a segregated country, and she died without ever knowing that that would change. But she claimed a new place for herself, publicly, unapologetically, in America's kitchens and living rooms, and opened the door for others to come. It was not just about the cooking skills and, and abilities and stuff, but it was about the community and being part of a community and the share. I mean, it really was. It takes, it takes a lot to kind of be aware of the world you live in and say, I am going to create another world for myself. And I think that's what Lena Richard did. to Side Door, a podcast from the Smithsonian with support from PRX. If you want to learn more about our show, we share supplemental content in our newsletter at si.edu slash side door. You can subscribe to Side Door wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Lizzie Peabody. Thanks for listening. How do you know if it turned? Uh, well, eventually you see it turn black, but if you're really bad at it, you can tell right away you just have to start over again, okay? <laughs> no doubt about it, okay? <laughs> if you love this episode as much as we do, check out Side Door, that's all one word, wherever you get your podcasts. There's tons more to discover. In the upcoming season, you'll hear about how blood-sucking worms paved the way for modern medicine, how robots can learn to tell the stories of our ancestors, and how to get away with murder in the Arctic. Maybe. Check it out.